Lord, we just come before you. We thank you for this evening. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come and learn from your word and ask you to show us what you'd have us to see. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Numbers 23, verse 1. We're continuing the story of Balaam. Balaam uh, came with to uh, Balak without initially without God's permission. God finally told him to go and told him specifically, say only what I say. And if you remember, we ended last week with... Uh, Balak offering six oxen and sheep and going to a high place and looking down over Israel. Verse 1, And Balaam said unto Balak, Build me here seven altars, and prepare me here seven oxen and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had spoken, and Balak and Balaam offered up on every altar the bullock and ram. And Balaam said unto Balak, Stand here by your burnt offerings, and I will go. Preadventure the Lord will come and meet me, and whatever he shows me, I will tell you, and he went to a, to a high place. And God met Balaam, and he said, I have prepared seven altars, and I have offered upon every altar a, a bullock and a ram. And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return unto Balak, and, and thus shall, you shall speak. And I returned unto him, and lo, he stood by his burnt sacrifice, he and all the princes of Moab, and took up this parable and said to Balak, The king of Moab has, taught, has brought me up from Aram, out of the mountains of the east, saying, Come and curse me, Jacob, and come defy Israel. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? <clears throat> or how shall I defile whom the Lord shall, has not defiled? For from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. Lo, the people shall dwell alone, and shall not be reckoned upon the mountains. Who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my last end be like his. All right, so we're going to look at what, what happened here. Balak has brought him up. He's put up, brought him up on a hill. He said, come look at these people. And, it, and we ended that he brought him up to a high place. Now that is, is a word meaning a place where idols are worshipped. In the high mountains, they, they had the high places where... So they're going to go make an offering to God in the high place of Baal. So it's not the best place to be offering in the first place. And so the Balaam says, set up seven altars, seven animals, bulls, and seven sheep, and we're going to burn them. And so we see this. Now, Balaam already knows that God is not going to curse Israel. But he keeps leading Balak on as if God will. And this is something that we need to be very careful as Christians. How often do we not speak the truth to people to try, them, try to get them lured in to think God might accept whatever it is they've done instead of saying God says this about it. And this is happening in a lot of churches that are, are not preaching sin, not, preach, not using the word sin, not bringing the blood of God in. And they're doing it so they can draw large numbers of people in and not offend them. But they're given a false opinion of God. And this is what Balaam is doing with Balak. He's given this false opinion that God might just decide to curse these people who, said, who he said he's not going to curse. Okay. Now, he's been honest. He says, I can only say what God says. And, and all the way through this, he's going to say, I can only say what God says. But he's still leading him on. You know, and we see this in this, uh, stand by your altar and I will go, pre-adventure the Lord will come to meet me and whatsoever he shows me, I will tell you. And then Balaam went up higher, went into the high place. And it says, 
God met Balaam and Balaam said, I have prepared seven altars and I have offered upon every altar a bullock and a ram. And he was talking about this. We talked about it last week. A lot of people have trouble with Balaam being a prophet of God because of this story. Okay, but it is said, Balak knows that when, when Balaam, cur- uh, Balak knows that when Balaam curses somebody, they are cursed and when he blesses them, they are blessed because Balaam speaks what he hears from God. Okay, and we, uh, we discussed last week that he's from the Midianite tribe and the Midianite, Midianite people worship the one God, but they're just not part of Israel. Okay, there's many places in that area of the world that worshiped one God and worshiped the God. They just weren't separated out by God to be the Jewish people. Okay? And we want to keep this in mind. God has never had just the Jews as his people. Many nations have been able to worship one God. Later on, when Daniel comes around, he's going to influence the Medo-Persian Empire and the Babylonian Empire into the worship of one God. And it's believed that the medio persian empire, that what was left are the wise men from the east that came to see Jesus and because of the stories that they got from Daniel and, and the Pentateuch that they would have been exposed to. Okay, Daniel was the leader of the wise men. The, the, so there's always been this group of people out there beyond the Jews that believe in one God and worship God. Maybe not as completely, not as, as fully, but they have believed in God. Okay? So Balaam here is following God. He says God's going to, you know, he's going to, can only say what God says. And so what does God tell him when he comes in? He says, in verse 7, he says, take up this parable. Balak, the king of Moab, that's the person who's called Balaam, has brought me down from Aram out of the mountains of the east, saying, Come, curse me, Jacob, and come defy Israel. And remember, we talked about cursing literally means to slow something down or to stop it. Okay, to stop it from moving forward. And Balak's big concern is, he, on his border, there are three and a half million people, 600,000 men of war, asking for permission to come through and he said no and he's wanting to march out against them even though he's terrified of them. Why is he terrified of them? They just beat the Amorites and he remembers Egypt. Okay? And so he's terrified of these people. They've been winning battles. They've been hanging out in the desert living somehow, three and a half million of them somehow living off the desert which is a miracle in itself and the people in that area know that. No, not much. I mean, well, a, a single family could manage to live in the desert. You know, we can, you know, the, the bo, bo, uh, Bohemians that live there even today wander around and a small family can find water. Oh, and Bedouin. Bedouin. Bedouin people. I knew it wasn't right when, even when I said it. The Bedouin people still in their families can live off the land that, that nobody knows where the water is and everything and they find water and they can dig the holes and and produce water but three and a half million people is quite a strain even in a fertile land three and a half million people is a strain on the um, economy environment environment, economy whatever whatever you're out there on and so he says curse them and defy them or denounce them 
And so he's saying, you, you've asked me to curse them and defy them. How should I curse whom God has not cursed? And how shall I defy them that God, the Lord has not defied? He says, from the top of the rocks I see them, and from the hills I behold them. Lo, the people shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. So in other words, they're going to be separated. And Israel has always been separated from the people. Even when they were conquered and spread across the face of the empires, they still did not assimilate. And that's usually what would happen to these people. They would be spread out all over the place and basically they got assimilated by the local environment because there just wasn't enough of them to keep their uh, traditions and everything alive completely. And yet the Jews would not be assimilated into the rest of the nations. And so, and this is Balaam's promise from God. They're not, they're going to be, they're going to be separate. They're not going to become part of another group. Look at the Indian tribes that live in the state of Arizona, not counting the other states. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of them that has not intermingled. Of course they haven't. They've been set in reservations. They haven't been intermingled with the population. But there's many of them that's got college educations. They go out, but they go back to the reservation to find their wives. But again, they're not separated. Right. Okay. Part of the, the part of the the melting pot of America was that these all these people would come from other countries and they would become American with a little bit of their own flavor added to it, but they would become American. And now they're starting to do just what the Indians have been doing. They move into neighborhoods that are all one type of people and instead of assimilating into the, into the country, they become their own little country enclave in America and expect everybody in America to honor their way of life. And that's what the world is wanting. And that's what Satan, Satan wants all that division. Yes. He wants all that. If we see it even in the churches in America, we have Spanish churches, Chinese churches, Korean, Korean churches, we black churches, you know. We have all these different churches and we're keeping everybody separated instead of being a unified <coughs> church. We're having all these churches that are separated and and somehow a little different instead of being joined together in unity. In the in the New Testament we see that they brought slaves and, and masters and all the different nationalities were in one church worshiping God in spite of whatever their customs and nationality and, and normal way of life would be, they brought them together. And we're seeing today, even our churches are segregating themselves by nationalities and, and playing, you know, playing the non-unity game out of it. And here... Balaam's saying they're not going to be made part of the nations. And they never were supposed to be. They were supposed to be the priestly tribe to the world and bring the world to God, and they didn't do that. But they weren't to be, they were to be separated, and God made all kinds of promises to them. Why? He said the Sabbath was, is our sign that you're different. Circumcision is their sign before God that they're different. Okay, and all these things, in the, in, and Paul especially recognized it, that that Gentiles weren't to become Jews because by coming to Christ. But the Jews could go ahead and practice their Judaism and just know that they were now worshiping the Messiah. But it wasn't to be forced upon the Gentiles. And James in the church in Jerusalem noted 
noted that same thing. So, and then it says in verse 10, who can count the dust of Jacob, the number of the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like this. So he's saying, you know, you can't even count the fourth part of Israel. Okay, basically saying they're large. <laughs> and we know that there's a little over 600,000 fighting men in this group. And so he's saying, you're not even going to be able to count, you know, what you see, you can't even count. You can't count this large group of people. And he's saying basically, not even that, but God is their defense. So you, even if you could count them, you're not going to be able to defeat them because God is there. And we see God defend his people over and over and over again, in the, especially in the Old Testament. But even in, in testimonies from missionaries, we see God defend his people, guard his people, protect his people. You know, Hezekiah looks out, their, their army is surrounding him, and he looks out, and 720,000 men were killed in one night by the angel of the Lord. And we've seen this over and over. We see Elijah you know, saying, God, open the eyes of my servant so he can see that those that are for us are more than those that are against us. They're surrounded by an army, and that army is surrounded by angels. And it took only one angel to kill 720,000, so having an army being surrounded by an army, army of angels means that they would they stood no chance. We look at Revelation and Jesus comes back and the Antichrist goes to fight war with him and he just speaks and they're killed. After the, after the millennial kingdom when Satan comes back and gets, gathers up the people that number the number as the sand of the earth it says, so millions or possibly billions, God just sends fire from heaven and destroys all of them in an instant. Okay, God doesn't play around when he, go, when he goes to defend. And ba Balak does not even understand what he's, what he's asking. And even I don't think Balaam fully understands the people of Israel's position with God. Because he's kind of thinking, you know, that God can be bought off. We can, we can make a good agreement here. And, and, and God will make a decision to change his mind. How could they? Well, because he doesn't understand. That's what I mean. How yeah. could and, and, you know, God wanted them to go out into the world and tell others and teach others. But that's hard to do that and be separated at the same time. Yes. Yep. Verse 12, And he answered and said, Must I not take heed to speak that which the Lord has put in my mouth? And Balak said unto him, Come, I pray you, and with me to another place, from whence you may see them, you shall see but the uttermost part, utmost part of them, and you shall not see all of them, and curse them from me from there. Okay, so Balak comes back, Balaam comes back, he blesses Israel, and Balak gets all uptight. Okay, he, he brought his, Balaam to curse Israel, and remember what he has told Balaam already is, whom you curse is cursed, and whom you bless is blessed. He does not, Balak does not understand that Balaam is speaking for God. He just thinks he's some kind of magician and whoever he decides to bless is going to be blessed. And uh, So he does not understand this whole dynamic that's going on that Balaam is telling him. And Balaam keeps telling him, I can only say what God says. But again, when you get your mind made up, you don't usually hear what you're being told. 
And this can happen in a Bible study when you're listening and, and you have your mindset that this is what you're going to do. And maybe this particular Bible study even is completely talking about what it is you, what you have your mindset. But because your mind is set and you're not listening anymore, you end up hearing the Charlie Brown's adults, wah, 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 the whole time. <laughs> and then you hear the one word that goes, oh yeah, that's what I wanted to hear. And then you, and then you go back to this, you know, this long time of not understanding. Then you hear another word that you think you hear and you grab hold of that one. And then you come away with a totally different message of what was spoken. And I have seen this happen more than once. And this happened, I've done it at times, you know, listen to the tape, think, oh, it was a really good tape. And I listen to the tape, I'm going, that's not what I heard that night. But the disciples did this themselves. Jesus over and over again said, I'm going to go die. I've got to pay for the sins of the earth, of the people. And they're all going, what are you talking about? Uh, that does not compute. You're the, you're the Messiah. You're, you're going to build this kingdom. And, and because it doesn't compute, I am not listening. Okay? Kids are really good at this too. And we all act like kids when it comes to God. Uh, no, you can't go outside to play. It's going to be too bad a weather. Well, maybe if I ask her enough times, I'll get the, right, the answer I want. Okay. Um, I've counseled several young people who wanted to get married. Now, my first question is, is the individual that you're wanting to get married a Christian? Well, no. But I think I can lead them to the Lord. Then I go, the answer to your question is, no, you don't get married. God is not leading you to get married. Well, how do you know? I go, because God says don't be unequally yoked. Well, but this is, but I'm a special case. You know, if you ever get to the place thinking you're special and can do something that God says not to do, you're deceiving yourself. God is not going to tell you to do something that is against the scriptures, period. It's just the way it is. He's not going to come up and say, well, you are just so special and spiritual and, and, the, and, the, and, and the most strong individuals out there. You can go ahead and do whatever it is that's against the scripture. It is critical for us to keep that in mind. Our emotions will lie to us. Okay, All the time, our emotions will lie to us because the emotions are part of the flesh. And emotions are built upon our feelings and our experience. I am, I am happy because good things are happening to me. I am sad because bad things are, ha are happening to me. That's what my emotions will tell me. I want to just be peaceful with God and be a joy that's underlying it all and have an attitude that I am going to have joy no matter what. That doesn't mean I won't be bad and have bad things happen. It might not even mean that I, that I won't be sad. But there's going to be this joy and this underpinning underneath me. God is in control. And I've told people, I am going to have a good day. No matter what, I am going to have a good day. Why? Because God is in control. He's not going to send anything that's not for good. And I totally believe it. And, I'm, and I am just going to have a good day. That does not mean I'm not going to have a bad day, you know, that bad things aren't going to happen and it's going to be a hard day to get through. It just means I'm not going to let it defeat me. And just as we've said a couple, you know, a couple of services ago, discontentment will ruin all of our contentment. If I am discontent, I will ruin all the good that's happening to me. And it's, and it's amazing how discontentment will overrule the contentment. So here we have Balak saying, 
you, you, you are special. You, you are the one doing all of this. Okay, he doesn't recognize God, so he's going to go, come on, let's go to a higher mountain. I want you to see a lot more of these people. I want you to see what I'm up against. So in verse 14, and he brought him up to the field of Zophin, to the top of Piscal, and built seven altars, and offered a bullock and a ram on every altar. And he said unto Balak, stand here by your burnt offering while I meet the Lord yonder. Okay, does anybody, number one, remember what, Mount, what happened to Mount Piscal later on? For Moses died. It's where Moses gets to see the promised land from. So this is a pretty tall mountain. Okay, he's going to see, he's going to see a good part of the people. And so he offers another, sets up another set of altars, offers up the offering. Again, what is he ending up telling Balak? There is hope that God might change his mind. Okay, he should have just been able to say, God's already made his decision, it's not. Yeah, why didn't he? He wanted the reward. He wanted the wealth, the wealth and the status that has been promised. And this is where we can get sometimes, where we want something from God so much, we want something, or actually we want something of the world so much, that we try to get God to say it's okay. Trying to bend, huh? Huh? Trying to bend the rule, bend God. Bend, bend his rules, you know, and get my emotions involved. And this is what I'm saying, you know, you get somebody who's wanting to marry somebody who's Thank not, you. well, not saved, and, and say, well, God... God obviously will change his mind if I ask him long enough or hard enough, you know. And part of that comes because that's how we deal with our parents, and our parents usually will change their mind if you ask them long enough, admit, not often enough. They'll, they'll get worn out and just say, it's bad for you, but go do it. You know, go, go ruin your life. And basically, that is what is taught to people, and, and it's kind of the hope that maybe God, if I ask him enough times, he'll, he'll, he'll change his mind. God doesn't change his mind. He doesn't bend his rules. He doesn't see us as super spiritual that we can get out of it. Matter of fact, if we think we're super spiritual, we're setting ourselves up for a fall. He ends up changing us. <laughs> he changes us. <laughs> Sometimes he'll let us go ahead and do it anyway. You know, mm -hmm. let us do it anyway because, you know, he knows we're not going to stop. And he says, "Go ruin your life." You know, sometimes that's what you do with teenagers. You know, say, "Hey, you know, this is a terrible decision, but if this is what you really, really, really want to do, it's wrong." But do what you do what you think is best and they go on they make a mess out of their life and sometimes it's good to do that with a teenager while they're still at home so you can come back and help them pick up the pieces teach them how to pick up the pieces and god will do that oftentimes with us saying hey it's wrong but you make your best you make your bed you go to sleep in it but you know if you want to do it it's your choice and and it's wrong and so we see in here that Balak, Balaam is giving Balak hope. Over and over, he's giving him hope that God may change his mind, that he may get his desire. And so, I don't know, I'm gonna come over here. Let's try it again. Yeah, basically, let's, let's keep. Well, maybe we'll see him enough. He'll decide that, you know, that this is a really good idea, and he'll bless me. Because he's still obviously thinking that Balaam is the decision maker here. He's not. He's not hearing him say, "I can only do what God." says but also in his mind most people who have made their own religion and their own god know that it's their own religion and their own god so when when somebody says they're following god they're going okay well that's your god but you but you created him so you're going to eventually make up your own mind to do what you want they don't really understand how somebody can follow god that has an absolute standard and will not change 
When we say this is God's rules, the world comes back in, well, who are you to say that there's one set of rules out there and only one way? Well, God is. God created everything. He's the, the maker. He sets the rules. And you, if you've ever wondered, if you ever talk to somebody who says there's no absolute morality, no absolute rules, it's amazing how close their rules match up to God's anyway. Okay, they're going to say they don't expect somebody to lie. They don't. If you make an agreement with them, they expect you to keep it. That's God's rule. They expect you not to kill people. You know, even if they might be willing to kill, you know, kill for what they want, but they still know that it's wrong. You know, so even when they're making up their own religion, they still base it on God's rules because He puts them in our innermost being and in our conscience. Now, somebody can sear their conscience and go against God's moral law, but they have to work at it. They have to work at it a long time, and if you know them while they're getting there, they know that every lie they tell is wrong. Now, they can keep telling lies until they get to a place where, you know, scientists call it, you know, pathological liar. They just cannot tell the truth anymore. Okay, now they like to say this is, this is a disease and it led to it, but no, they have just seared their conscience to the point that they can lie without even comprehending that they're lying. And, you know, this is a problem that is out there. The science wants to say that this is a sickness in you instead of recognizing that it's a sin that you've done so many times that you've seared your conscience and can do it now without any guilt. They start believing it themselves. They start believing it. Well, it said if you tell a lie long enough, loud enough, it begins to be considered true. This is what evolution does. It tells the truth. It's telling their lie often enough, loud enough, shouting down any opposition so that people begin to believe that it is the only truth out there. And I put that in, in quotes because it's a great big lie. But it, they've, they've said it over and over and over and again to the point where most people believe that it's true. And we see this, you know, the, the idea that abortion is not killing a baby. They've, they've changed all the words and everything and keep saying it over and over and over again. And, and you hear the words like fetus or mass of tissue, you know, it's, they don't even like the word fetus because that, you know, people who know, because people who know it knows that it means baby. They like to, they like to use the word, it's just a mass of tissue. Okay, and so they dehumanize it to the point where Okay, well, no, it's no big deal. And then, they, and then they wrap it up into this whole idea of, of choice, you know, to keep or not keep. Well, I believe in choice, too. They had a choice of having sex or not having That's sex. Right, yeah. Now, uh, once you've decided to break that first step, then the consequences are God's. And so, and anything of killing that child is murder. And, you know, we, and, but they don't like that being taught. We get homosexuality that the world is trying to say is just an alternative lifestyle. You know, so who are we to say that man and, man and a woman are the only way to have marriage? Well, God is the one that said it. He said it right from the very beginning, and he's not going to change his mind. And we see all these different groups. We see the, a lot of twisting of the scriptures and everything to try to make it sound like it may have happened you know, to good people. You know, they say that David and Jonathan's love for each other was a homosexual love instead of a friendship love. You know, and it's, uh, you know, and, and all these things that go involved with all of this stuff, and it's just sick what they'll do to twist God's word to try to make 
their point of view strong. And Balaam is doing this with, oh, they're okay, yeah, and, and then tell you you have to accept it because it's just as good as yours, you know, because there's no, you know, you know because they'll absolutely tell you that there's no absolute standards. I used to love doing that, in, you know, talking to people in college. They go, well, you know there's no absolutes. And I go, are you absolutely sure? <laughs> they go, what? I go, you just made an absolute statement that there are no absolutes, which is an absolute statement. So therefore, your statement is wrong. There are absolutes. <laughs> you know, because you cannot make an absolute statement that there are no absolutes. <laughs> because that doesn't work. It's an illogical statement. And so... We see here Balaam keeping Balak hopeful. Because Balak is already inclined to believe that Balaam can change his mind at any, at any point. Because his God, he can just change gods. He can you know, make the priests say what he wants them to say because there's no real God there that he's worshiping. And so he's believing that Balaam has the same attitude. So in verse 16, And the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, Go again to Balak and say, Thus, and when he came unto him, behold, he stood by his burnt offering with the princes of Moab, and Balak said, What has the Lord spoken? Okay, he's still using the right terminology. Again, he doesn't believe that there's a God that is that Balaam has to answer to, because that's not what he's used to. Okay, that's not his God. It's not. It's not. It's not what he's used to. But he's willing to, because Balaam has said, I can only say what God says. He's willing to. Ad- kind of placate Balaam and say, okay, you know, we'll, we'll play your game a little longer. So then the king actually believes this is all a bunch of hogwash and bull. He believes Balaam has some form of so- sorcery or magic involved. But he believes it's at Balaam's command, not that he's following God. Okay? He won't next up fella, huh? He's like the rest of the world. We face the same thing today. Oh boy, we do. We face the same thing, and I've been talking a lot about it. How many people do you meet who say, I like this piece of Christianity, I like this piece of Buddhism, I like this piece of Hinduism, I like this piece of Judaism, I like this piece of Native American, and they build their own religion. Or it may not even be pulling that, I like this part of the Bible, and I like this part of the Bible, I don't like this part, we're going to get rid of this, and I like this part of the Bible, and they make up their own Christian biblical religion by picking and choosing what they're going to believe out of the Bible. That is probably what we deal with the most in the Christian world is people who just don't want to accept all of the Bible and when something comes across that they don't like, they ignore it. <laughs> well, obviously God is not for against homosexuality because you know, I can find this, 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 and you know, and obviously he is not talking about don't be unequally yoked, so we'll throw, throw that one out. People say that and they don't have a clue in the world what Christian means, do they? Nope. Many people sitting in churches don't really understand what it means to be Christian. To be accused of being like Christ mm-hmm. and trying to live your life the way he did when he was here. But again, it comes down to, no do sense. you believe the Bible? Right. And as I've said, if the Bible isn't 100% true, None of true. I am wasting my time with any of it. If there's any part of it that I cannot believe or choose not to believe, then I'm wasting my time Amen. following any of it. Because it's either all true, all scripture is, is given by inspiration, is profitable for doctrine, for proof, reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness, or none of it is. Well, 
Well, isn't there a verse even in the Bible that says you're either all in or you're... Uh, well, not necessarily that, but it, it, there's a lot of it that says that God is all true. And Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. So, I mean, it basically, I mean there's, all that, there's a lot of verses that make that principle. But it is critical for us to be able to understand. We cannot pick and choose what we like out of the Bible. And we will end up talking to lots of people who claim to be Christians who will tell you just that. Well, I like this part, or I like, you know, God, you know, I follow the God of love. He would never send anybody to hell. Well, my God is a God of love. But he's also a God of justice and righteousness. And he says that if you reject Jesus Christ, you're going to go to hell. Whether you like it or not, and he says it's eternal punishment. It's not an annihilation. You get thrown in, you get burned, you know, you know, suffer for a little while, and then you, you, you're annihilated. Am I wrong in my answer then? When someone says that to me, God doesn't. He, he does not send people to hell. No. He gives you a choice, and you make the choice, so you've done it to yourself, not yeah. God. And that's the answer. I mean, that, God is not sending anybody to hell. They've chosen it. And when they stand at the white throne judgment, they are going to be shown every opportunity they had to accept God. And some will have just a few, and some will have, especially in like in a place like in America, hundreds and thousands of opportunities they had to reject Christ. And nobody will be in hell, and I believe that's part of the punishment of hell. You're going to remember for eternity why you're there. What, well, and I kind of believe you're going to be able to look in like a one-way mirror and see what you're missing, but you're definitely going to know why you're there, and you're going to, that's going to haunt you for eternity. I, gave, I rejected him this many times, because that's the last thing you're going to remember is him showing you all the times you rejected him. And it's critical. We need to give out the gospel, because hell is not a place that we want anybody to go to. We, we shouldn't, you know... Uh, I have said with my gout pain that gout is something I would not wish on anybody. If I had an enemy, I wouldn't wish it on an enemy. Mm-hmm. My gout pain is nothing compared to what hell, hell is going to be like. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't even wish my gout pain on him. I would definitely not wish hell on anybody to be tortured for eternity because of the decision they made. So as, as God's disciple, if I go to somebody, look, you're wrong. I already know I'm wrong, but I want you to know that you're wrong. They're going to go in it. I would probably not tell them they're wrong. I, I'm, if I'm going up to somebody, I'm going to give them the gospel if they're not a Christian. And that's all I'm going to do. Uh, when I go up to somebody, I'm not sitting there saying, you know, well, you're, you're a homosexual or a lesbian, so you're headed to hell. No. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say, you're a sinner. And I'm not even going to pick on on that one because they're probably not going to believe that it's a sin anyway. But have you lied? Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever had a lustful thought? I'm not going to worry about the, the questionable ones, the ones I'm going to have to argue with them on whether they're sin or not. I'm going to go to the things that they're going to know is sin. You're a liar. You're a thief. You're a murderer. You know, you're an adulterer, at least in your mind, if not physically. You're and then, rejecting of Jesus. <laughs> and yeah, you know, and then give them God's solution, and then ask them, do you, want to become, do you want to get to know God and follow God, basically? And then God can, once they're a new creation, God can get them into the Word of God, and God can teach them all these other things are sin. Now, if I'm dealing with another Christian brother or sister, 
again, just as I said a couple weeks ago, unless I am praying for that person, and I mean honestly praying for that person, number one, I don't have a right to tell them that they're right or wrong or, or, or living in sin. Because I don't care enough to pray for them, I definitely don't have the right to go into their life and say, get your life right. Now, as a pastor, I have a little more authority, but, you know, uh, but for the most part, I'm not even going to do it there because certain people are going to listen, certain people are not. Now, if I've developed a relationship with somebody and I've been teaching them and counseling them and I know that they're listening to what I'm saying, then I might mention, you know, this is an area you, that God has some things to say on. And, if, and I'll be very gentle and loving and it's still that person's choice to follow or not follow. One of the questions I get all the time at the jail, at the prison, how do you handle this guy who says he's a Christian and doesn't live that way? And I go, you pray for them. I go, they stand or fall before God, not you. Because you don't know where God's working on in their life and where he's not working on. And we have to be very careful about trying to change somebody to fit our mold when God's got them in a different mold somewhere else, working on different areas of their life. And we're so worried about what... And usually what it is is we worry about an area that God has pushed hard in our life on. And when we see it in other people's lives, we kind of get judgmental of them. That's why some of the worst people around smokers are ex-smokers. That's right, or ex-drinkers. Or ex-drinkers, you know, because God has taken this habit out of their life, and they're all over these people. You should be just like me. God God got me out of this. Well, I granted that they probably should be. (laughs) But if God's not working on that part of their life, you back off. Now, I'll tease people about smoking or drinking at various times, but, you know, but mostly it's just kind of plant a seed, you know, is God, is God working on you in that area? Um, and we want to be careful because if we get them focused on the wrong area, God's working, trying to work on them someplace else, and we're working on, on my, my hang-up that God has taken out of my life, and I'm worried about you living in that problem because obviously if God took it away from me, everybody should live the same same way that I have, because he only has one plan out there, right? No, he's got a plan, individualized plan for everybody. And so what he's doing for me is not something I can go out and say, you need to be just like me and follow my plan that God gave me because that's not his plan. But people do it all the time, and we as Christians do it frequently. We want to get people in God's word and let God work out their salvation because it says they stand or fall before their own master. And I'm not anybody's master. And this is why when people go, what should I do? I'm going, well, let's look at what God says and I'm going to try very hard not to tell somebody what to do because I don't want them to you know, go out and fail and then blame me for the, telling them what to do. You know, I will tell them what God, different principles with God and then go do what God wants you to do. You're going to stand or fall before God you know, you're not going to stand before me at the white throne judgment to tell, you know, tell what, you know, what you did. You're going to stand before God. And so we look at this. All right, so the parable in verse 18, he took up this parable and said, Rise up, Balak, and hear, hearken unto me, you son of Zephor. And these words for hearken and hear are to listen and obey. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and he shall, and shall he not do it? Or has he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he has blessed, and I cannot reverse it. Okay, so now he's getting a little, 
uh, strong with Balak here. It's like, you don't understand this relationship that I've been telling you. I can only say what God says. I'm not making this up. I'm not pretending. This is the way it is. He goes, God is not going to change his mind. What he says, I have to say, God has blessed them, and he and I can't reverse it. In other words, get it through your head, Balak. Uh, God is blessing them, and even if I was to curse them, they're not going to be cursed. Okay, and this is why Balak called him, whom you bless is blessed, and whom you curse is cursed. And he's going, God has blessed them, and even and he goes, and I cannot reverse it, basically saying, and even if I curse them, they're not going to be cursed. Okay, you hired me because I'm a man of my word, and what, ha what I say happens, I won't. If I curse them, it won't happen. And so he says, and he, and has he not, be, and he has not beheld the iniquity of Jew, Jacob, neither has he seen the perversion in Jew, Israel. The Lord, his God, is with him, and the shout of the king is among them. Okay, so he's saying God's not even seeing their evil. Okay, now we know that's not quite a 100% true statement, but God is not holding it against them. We do know that. Okay, because he keeps judging them. He keeps telling Moses, I'm going to destroy them for all this, all this sin, and they repent. And, uh, but that repentance makes it that God does not see the sin anymore. It's the same thing for us. When it's confessed, it's under the blood of Christ, God does not see our sin. He calls us perfect. That's the first step of salvation. He justifies us, and he says, you are perfect. Now, we know we're not perfect. God knows we're not perfect. But he chooses to see us in the perfection of Christ. But we will be perfect. We will be perfect when we die or, and or raptured. We will be glorified and we will be what God says we are at the beginning. So, yes, we are. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Huh? It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Huh? Well, God says that it's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean. Our, we spend our lifetime trying to perfect our walk with him and become who he says we are. Now, only two people have ever come so close to God has taken them home, and that's Elijah and Enoch. They walked so close to God that he said, well, come on home. You're almost here anyway. You know, and he took them home. And, but the rest of us, everybody else in all of the time has not gotten that close to we God. We need to improve. We need to improve, Yes. He says, 22, God brought them out of Egypt, and, and he has, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. Okay, unicorn here, we're going to talk a little bit about unicorn. This word is used eight times in the scripture, and it's translated unicorn. In Hebrew, they don't know what the word is. Okay? Uh, when the... King James scholars translated this. They went to the Septuagint, and the Septuagint used a word in there that meant one horn in Greek. So they translated it. They looked at the Hebrew, didn't know what it meant. They looked at the Septuagint. They said one-horned one creature. And for somebody in England, they came up with the idea, unicorn. All right. That means one horn. Well, yeah, and one horn, uh, but it's a mythical creature, and that bothers some people. And uh, so we're going to look at, there's three possibilities that what this word actually is. Uh, 
there's a description of an Elasinothorum, which is a giant extinct rhinoceros that used to live in that area. Okay, one horn, untamable. Uh, and this is one of the things in the different places we know about the unicorn. It is big, it's not tameable, you can't put a yoke on it. It is uh, one place it says you cannot control it. And so it's, it might even be some form of dinosaur, you know, because we've talked about dinosaurs at various points. Uh, so, uh, but this is an extinct giant rhino. It's not even like the rhinos we have. The Assyrians had a similar word in, in their language, and they had pictures of it, and it was a giant extinct ox with its horns in such parallel positions that on profile it looked like a one-horned one animal. And again, it was something by description that they could not control. It was just too big. It was a what? It was called a rhyma. A what? Rhymu. Rhymu? In Assyrian. That's the Assyrian word for it. R-Y-M-O? R-I-M-U. Or Rimu. The other possibility they believe it is was a Vos Prima genus. <laughs> this is animal was described, I'm going to read you the description of Julius Caesar when he saw them in the Middle East. It's a creature a little below the size of an elephant, appearance and color and shape of a bull, strength and speed is extraordinary. They spare neither man nor beast when that they have espied. Not even when taken young can they be tamed with horns like an ox. Okay, so he's describing something that looks like an ox but the size of an elephant. How would I be able to look that up? Under what word? Um, well, I actually typed in the the Hebrew word, which I'd have to give. You'd have to look up in your Strong's Concordance okay. and type that into Google. Or if you really want the easy one, go to Answers in Genesis and type in unicorn and it'll give you several articles on it. So, but we just want to bring this up because this is, this, when the Bible mentions unicorn, a lot of skeptics go, well, you know, the Bible talks about mythical creatures. And they'll also say the same thing when it talks about dragons. Okay, and as we've talked about in our Sunday school classes with Answers in Genesis and other groups, dragons are probably just a word for dinosaur. Dinosaurs didn't live millions of years ago. They were created on day five and day six of creation. They were brought onto the ark. They didn't survive well in the new world. But we do know that dragon legends have been around all the way through to the 15th, 16th century. Uh, and very likely, you know, a dragon, when you look at the descriptions, sound very much like dinosaurs as we would describe them. And if you had a dinosaur running around your territory, you would be calling the king and say, send me some knights down here to kill this thing. And we have all kinds, especially in, in Wales and Ireland and England, all kinds of stories about the knights being sent out to kill dragons. Asia has all kinds of stories about dragons. And in the ancient writings, they even had, they had paid dragon tamers. Okay, so these aren't mythical creatures. These, you know, back in the days, this was not mythical creatures that we think they are today. Now, do we have a bad understanding of them today? Probably. 
we probably have a very bad understanding of what they really were, but that doesn't mean that they were mythical, non-existent creatures. So, Annie? There isn't anything in this Bible that's mythology. No. Well, it is true. It's, it's true because it's in the Bible because it is true. It's not true because it's there, but it is in the Bible because it is true. Just because we don't necessarily understand what they're referring to does not make it untrue. That's funny. We had the same question. Yeah. <laughs> because for years, up until about 30 years ago, they said David never existed because they found nothing in Israel other than the Bible, other than the, the Bible text that had David's name in it. And just about 20, 30 years ago, they finally found monuments to David and his son Solomon. And all of a sudden, everything they said was absolutely not true. He didn't really exist. He's a mythical character along the lines of King Arthur. And all of a sudden, they find out, oh, here's his name. Here's the story of what he's done outside of the Bible. Okay, everything in the Bible has been used by archaeologists. They, they go to say to look for things where the Bible says it is, and lo and behold, they find it. <laughs> if they look long enough, they find it. Um, and it's over and over and over, and they'll go, well, because we've never found something that obviously the Bible lied. And then just usually 10 years or so after they say, obviously the Bible's wrong, they will find the proof that it was right. So we can hold that this, we know that this word is true. And as, and as Dr. McGee said, all, J. Vernon McGee always said, you know, where he and God disagree, God is right. Okay? And that's a good place. If you read something and you don't understand how it can possibly be true and you can't make sense out of it, you just say, okay, God, you need, I need you to help show me where, where it is true because obviously it's true and I just, in my minuscule thinking can't figure it out and I have said this if I could understand God completely I don't have God I have something I've created he God must and by necessity to be God must be something I can't understand completely otherwise he's not God he's a creation of our imagination if we can understand him and this is important. And I'm not the only one, I'm not the originator of that thought, by the way. That's been around for, for years. You know what? When I was a little girl, and I had supposedly accepted him as my savior, uh, and I don't see how that's possible, but I didn't understand nothing. He was a beautiful, long, white-haired old man sitting up on a great big white throne. I, and who could be afraid of that? And I've learned through Isaiah, and I've learned through Ezekiel and Daniel. Uh, boy, that is far from the truth. <laughs> yep. And Satan didn't invent that lake of fire. God did. Yep. Verse 23, Surely there is no enchantment against Jacob, neither is there any divination against Israel. According to this time it shall be said of Jacob and of Israel, What has God wrought? Behold, the people shall rise up as a great lion and lift up himself as a young lion. He shall not lie down until he eat of the prey and drink of the blood of the slain. So basically he's telling Balak, Israel is just like that lion. When it, when it decides to kill its prey and eat, nobody's going to get in its way. Okay? 
Uh, I don't even like to try to take food away from a, a, my pet dog. <laughs> you know, you know, this little one I've got no big deal. But I mean, if you've got a big German Shepherd or something, you try to take their bone away from them. You could be taking your you could be taking your life in your hands. Yeah. And basically saying, you know, he's not even using a dog. He goes, go try to take something away from that lion. <laughs> That lion's eating. Go take its food away from him and see how far you get. You know, this is the picture he's putting out. Okay? Uh, you know, you're not going to go out there and take care of that. You're not going to, you're not going to be able to, to take, care, you know, take that away. Verse 25, And Balaam said unto Balaam, Neither curse them at all, nor bless them. Okay, he's getting frustrated. I've hired you to curse them. Quick blessing them. If you can't say the curse, quick blessing them. Okay? He's getting angry. You know? And the last thing you really want to do is make a king angry. Kings have a habit of taking your life if you uh, don't, don't do what they're saying. And but Balaam answered. Balaam answered and said unto Balak, Told not I you that all that the Lord speaks I must do. I've already told you, I, I am not speaking. It is God speaking. I can't say what I want. And Balak said unto Balaam, Come, I pray you, I will bring you up to another high place. Pre-adventure, it will please God that you may curse them from thence. So they're going to go to another high place. And again, high place is literally higher mountain, but also a place of idol worship. He's already had it. He wants his answer. And Balak brought Balaam to the top of Peor that looks toward Jessamon. And Balaam said to Balak, Build me here seven altars and prepare me seven bullocks and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam said, and he offered a bullock and a ram on every altar. Again, Balaam is kind of leading him, leading him on. He keeps saying, I can only say what God says. But just by him being willing to go another time before God for this man, he's making him think there's hope. There, he's thinking there's, there's hope. This is one of the things we need to be careful. When we're going to talk to people about God and his rules, we do not want to wash down God's rules. God has rules. He has standards. We don't want to say, well, God will think it's okay. If you, just, if you just worship him in spirit and truth, God will wink at your sin and your iniquity. God never winks at this, the, the iniquity. He may give us grace and mercy over them, but there's always consequences. Even though he doesn't hold us guilty spiritually, there's consequences. The person who goes out and commits fornication or adultery will be forgiven, can, be, can and will be forgiven God, but they may also suffer the consequences of a pregnancy they didn't want, STDs that they didn't want. AIDS. Uh, well, yeah, that's an, one of the STDs. Uh, a reputation destruction that they didn't want. A person they didn't want. <laughs> a person they didn't want. Maybe. All kinds of consequences will come from these events. And God says we reap what we sow. And very important, we've talked about this often. When you sow a seed, the reaping is not equal to what you sowed. You get more than what you sow. Okay? Farmers would go broke if when they sowed a seed, they got one seed back. Yeah. 
okay? They don't expect to get one. You plant a corn seed, you do not expect to get a big stick with one tiny piece of corn, one, one nibble of the corn on it. You expect to get multiple ears of corn. You plant your wheat seed, you don't expect to get one little tiny wheat seed coming back up on the, here's your stock and your branch and here's your one tiny wheat germ on it, a grain of wheat. When we, re, when we sow, the same principles are happening in the spiritual world. We do not get back one for one. We reap a harvest. And this is why lives can be ruined by just one sin. Because this harvest from that sin can really be <coughs> devastation. How many young children, especially girls, go out and have one, one action of sex and end up having a child and or STDs out of, out of the one time because they're so convinced that it won't happen on the first time that, and... And it always happens on the first time. Well, not always, but often. You get twins or I have a daughter from... Yeah. And so, not that it's bad and not that it can't be redeemed. God will always redeem it. Everything works out for, you know, for good. But there's still consequences now the flip side of that is when we sow good seed and we do and we're and we're doing what God says, we also reap a larger harvest back from that. Now can Spencer family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they're all and they're all behaved, they're all behaved and, well, and, and well trained. Can God intervene in these consequences? Yes. Does he? Not most of the time. He can and sometimes does, but the majority of the time he lets us reap what we sow. And this is why we need to be careful following him and saying, I am going to honor God. I'm going to do what he wants. And I want to sow good. I want to sow more good than bad so that I end up reaping more good than bad. And God will step in and he'll say, okay, here is, here's the reward. But even when you're sowing good seed, it doesn't mean that bad things won't happen. We look at Job. Job was doing good. God said, he's a perfect man, is what he told, told, told Satan. He hates evil. And Satan says, that's just because you're protecting him. And he says, okay, go and touch him. Okay? So it can work both ways. God can step in and intervene both on the reaping of the good and on the reaping of the bad. He usually doesn't, but he can. And Job is a great example of him stepping in against the, the bad. And all the people that we know that have bad things happen to him on one event is a good example of him not stepping in when, it, when, it, when it's bad. But God is going to make sure it is for good for those who are called according to the purpose of God. So we as Christians, when something bad happens, even if it's our fault, even if it's my fault and I deserve it because I sowed bad seed, all things, not just all the things that God, God put in my life, but all things work together for good. For them that love and called according to the purpose of God, which is Christians. So even when I deserve the bad that I get, God will use it for good. And we want to grab onto that because Satan will love to get hold of us and, and make us feel bad. Well, you're just getting what you deserve. And yeah, you're right, Satan. I really deserve this. But God can use it for good and will use it for good. And so we need to keep these things in mind. And we're going to close there. 
Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for all that you've done. Help us always to speak the truth in love and to not lead people on that you're going to accept their misbehaviors and that you're going to wink at them. Help us to speak truth to people. Help us to love people and pray for them and guide them into the gospel. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.